Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. If you're interested in getting some merch, visit my YouTube channel, or you can donate directly via Venmo or PayPal following the links in the description. You can submit case suggestions to southerngirlcrimestories at gmail.com or DM me on social media. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Tiffany Michelle Johnston was born on April 6, 1978, to parents Kathy and Michael Dobry. In 1997, at the age of 19, she lived in Bethany, Oklahoma, and was a newlywed of only three months married to Ryan Johnston. On July 26, 1997, Tiffany's Dodge Neon was found abandoned at the Sunshine Car Wash in her hometown. The next day, her nude body was found on the side of a dirt road near Interstate 40 in a Canadian County field. She had been sexually assaulted, beaten, and strangled to death. The suspect's DNA was recovered from the sexual assault and would not only solve her murder, but a series of murders that occurred in the summer of 1997 in the Houston area. Eighteen years later, in 2015, the DNA was linked to serial killer William Lewis Reese. A calling card also put him in the area where she disappeared. Reese was charged with her murder and was already serving a 60-year sentence for kidnapping Sandra Sapal. He took Sandra from a parking lot in Webster, Texas in 1997 at Knife Point after she stopped for help at a gas station because her tire had been slashed. She was pregnant when she jumped out of his truck as he sped down I-45. She then underwent forensic hypnosis and identified Reese as her abductor. He was sentenced to 50 years in prison in 1998, which explains why the murders stopped. The year after, his DNA tied him to Tiffany's murder and he was moved to Oklahoma City to stand trial. He would then confess to a Texas Ranger that he murdered Tiffany and ultimately confessed to other murders. He had been suspected of murdering 12-year-old Laura Smither, 17-year-old Kelly Ann Cox, and 20-year-old Jessica Kane. All three went missing in the Houston, Texas area in the summer of 1997, but only Laura's remains had been discovered and were found while authorities searched for Kelly's remains. He confessed to their murders and offered to show detectives their burial sites. He then offered to fully confess to the murders in court under two conditions, the death penalty would be off the table and he could live out his remaining sentence in Oklahoma. But authorities refused to make a deal and in April 2016, they excavated the burial sites he marked on the map and discovered the skeletal remains of Kelly Ann Cox and Jessica Kane. Although he confessed to the murders, he refused to admit the killings were sexually motivated. During his killing spree, Reese served 10 years in prison for sexually assaulting two other women. He claimed that the first murder in 1997 was in Franswood, Texas, 
when he accidentally hit 12-year-old Laura Smither with his car on a rainy day. He said he panicked and then broke her neck and put her remains in a lake. Later, he admitted to kidnapping and strangling her to death. Three months later, on July 15, 1997, 20-year-old Kelly Ann Cox was trying to finish her degree in psychology at the University of North Texas and hoping to work as a juvenile counselor. She dropped off her 19-month-old daughter Alexis at a babysitter's and drove to the Denton County Jail for a field trip with her criminology class. Her professor told the students not to bring phones, keys, or personal items to the prison. So Kelly and her boyfriend Lawrence had a spare key made for her car and tested it the night before. On the day of the tour, she parked her car at the prison, locked all her stuff inside, and hit the little magnetic box with the spare key in the wheel well of her vehicle. After the tour, Kelly walked down the sidewalk on the south end of the building to the parking lot. That spare car key that had worked just hours before mysteriously wouldn't work. She walked across the street to Rick's drive-in, where she went in, got change, came back out, and used the payphone to call Lawrence for help. He drove the 40-minute drive straight to the jail to find Kelly's car, but there was no sign of Kelly. Authorities were quickly suspicious of her boyfriend, but he passed four lie detector tests and had an alibi. A tip came in that William Reese, a convicted sex offender, had just been released from prison. A credit card receipt from a gas station put him in Denton the day Kelly disappeared. But no evidence of her fingerprints was found in his truck, so the detectives moved on looking for evidence elsewhere. Reese claimed that he stopped in Denton, Texas that day to buy whiskey, and he and Kelly got into a physical altercation. He attacked her, strangled her to death, and buried her in the woods with a bulldozer. Kelly's parents would raise Kelly's daughter Alexis as their own, and she would later attend the University of North Texas just like her mother. A beautiful, large statue of Kelly and Alexis sits on campus between Clinton Hall and Music Practice Building North as a memorial to the tragic loss. It would be 18 years until her remains were found in a horse pasture in Brazoria County, some 300 miles away from her home in Farmer's Branch. Reese then claimed that a week and a half later, he was at the Sunshine Car Wash in Bethany, Oklahoma, at the same time as Tiffany Johnston. He then forced her inside his horse trailer, attached to his truck, and sexually assaulted her. Finally, Reese strangled her and put her body in the woods by the side of the road. He said he knew Tiffany's mother, Kathy Dobry, as she was an acquaintance of his family. Her car was later found at the car wash with the mats still hanging on the clothespins. Two weeks later, he approached 17-year-old Jessica Kane outside Bennigan's, a restaurant in Clear Lake. She rebuffed him, so he followed her car and forced her to stop, where he then attacked and strangled her to death. Her car was found abandoned on the side of the highway later that day. The trial for Tiffany's murder began in 2017, but was postponed due to COVID, and finally ended in 2021, finding him guilty of Tiffany's murder and sentenced to death. During the trial, three other females testified that he had kidnapped and sexually assaulted them in the Houston area on July 3, 1997. After his conviction, Reese was extradited to stand trial in Texas in March 2022. 
He pleaded guilty to Laura, Kelly, and Jessica's murders and was sentenced to life imprisonment in June 2022. At trial, prosecutors alleged that Reese targeted his victims to satisfy his sexual urges. In addition, they alleged he lied in his confessions and never revealed his true motive and all the details of each death. His reign of terror started much earlier than 1997, though. He often beat his wife and in 1986 nearly killed a 19-year-old woman. The daughter of a deputy sheriff had just finished classes at the University of Oklahoma and was driving to work. As she traveled on I-35 to her job as an aerobics instructor, her Mustang stalled in the rain. A semi pulled up with serial killer Reese behind the wheel. He offered to take her to a phone, but after pulling into a store's parking lot, he forced her onto a mattress in the truck's sleeper cab. Then, after shoving her into a sleeping bag and driving elsewhere to park, he sexually assaulted her, told her how much he loved her, and that he was lonely and they were going to live forever in Houston. Eventually, she got him to let her use the restroom, where she asked to call her family in front of several witnesses. He gave her a quarter, asked for a kiss goodbye, and drove away, but was ultimately caught. While waiting for trial, he sexually assaulted another woman he followed home from a bar. Although he was caught again and convicted in both attacks, he would only serve 10 of the 25 years he was sentenced. Then in October 1996, after an appeals court reduced his sentence because of improper comments by a prosecutor, Reese went free and went on a killing spree. He then moved back into his mother's home in Anadarko, Oklahoma. His mother's friend offered to drive him to town to get a new driver's license, knowing he had been in jail, but didn't ask what he had been jailed for. That woman was the mother of Tiffany Johnston, who he would later kill. But she wouldn't know her friend's son was her daughter's killer until 2016, 19 years later. His kidnapping spree would take the lives of several women in five months and fuel public interest in the Texas Killing Fields, an area off I-45 in Houston known for dead bodies. All five kidnappings and four murders would not have happened had he not been released from prison 15 years early due to improper comments made by a prosecutor. During her impact statement, Laura's mother, Gay Smither, thanked Reese for finally telling the truth and forgave him, stating that it was necessary to forgive him for her and her family to begin healing. Jessica Kane's parents did not attend the hearings and stopped making public statements regarding their daughter's case several years ago. Disgustingly, the only reason Reese was hoping to avoid both life in prison and the death penalty was so he could preserve his right to a veteran's burial in a national cemetery. Hopefully, he will not be buried amongst hundreds of heroes, and honestly, he should be buried in the woods just like his victims. Amanda Steingasser was born on July 5, 1976, to parents Richard and Lorraine Steingasser and went by the nickname Mandy. Mandy grew up in New York and at the age of 17, lived in North Tonawanda and was a senior at North Tonawanda High School. She was described as a good-hearted teenager who enjoyed partying, but sometimes made bad choices with the people she surrounded herself with. 
On September 19, 1993, at about 1 a.m., Mandy was out with her best friend, Stacy Blazinski, Stacy's boyfriend, and another young man. As they were walking to a house party in North Tonawanda, they ran into a group of people and a fight broke out between the boys and the two groups. The two groups separated, and Mandy's group headed back toward the house where the party was. However, Mandy didn't want to go with them because she was worried about her curfew and headed for Fifth Avenue instead. That's where she would see Joseph Belstad passing in his car, and witnesses said they saw him stop and pick Mandy up at Oliver Street and Fifth Avenue. This was the last time Mandy was ever seen alive. Later that morning, Belstad was seen cleaning his car at a car wash. When questioned, he told police that Mandy was only in his car briefly before he dropped her off a few blocks away at a church. But police believe that he drove Mandy to a lover's lane area of Bond Lake Park and murdered her. Afterward, he reportedly asked at least two friends to lie about his whereabouts after he picked up Mandy. Belstad was an 18-year-old senior in high school, set to graduate the following spring, but after the night of September 19th, he basically dropped out. 36 days later, on October 25th, a couple of guys out looking for mushrooms stumbled upon her body in a ravine at Bond Lake Park in Niagara County. She had sustained a hairline skull fracture above her left ear and had been strangled with her bra. During the initial investigation, it was learned that sisters Tanya and Rebecca Coughlin saw Mandy getting into Belstad's black 1984 Pontiac 6000. For the next 24 and a half years, police remained confident that Belstad was Mandy's killer. Police had even searched his car and collected two pubic hairs, but at the time, technology wasn't available to determine who they belonged to. In 2017, with technology way more advanced, they were able to determine that the two pubic hairs were consistent with Mandy's. In addition, a DNA expert reported the hairs had root tissue, indicating they were removed using force. In 2018, Belstad was arrested and charged with her murder. However, a judge dismissed the jury in 2020 over concerns about COVID-19 and declared a mistrial. In 2021, the trial restarted and over 40 witnesses testified, including a retired attendance office secretary at Mandy and Belstad's high school. She testified that Belstad was absent from school on September 20th when Mandy was reported missing, and he didn't return until October 6th. He then quit coming to school two weeks later on October 19th and was listed as a dropout the following month. Mandy's mother, Lorraine, said her daughter always called if she was going to be late. Lorraine testified she received two calls in the early morning of September 19, 1993, but neither was from Mandy. One was a hang-up, and then one was a man with one of Mandy's friend's voices in the background asking if Mandy was home. During the trial, defense attorneys said that Mandy's boyfriend at the time, Chris Pelesh, should be looked at as a suspect, but Chris was out of town at the time she went missing. Mandy's best friend, Stacy, testified at the trial and retold the events of the night. She said after a night of partying, Mandy walked away as soon as the guys got into a fight. 
Her group walked back to the house where they had been hanging out earlier, but Mandy didn't want to be caught by the police because she was out past curfew. Stacy said Mandy walked the other way with a man she didn't know, and that was the last time she saw Mandy. That man was Donald Colbrenner, who has since died. A former North Tonawanda police officer testified that he stopped Mandy and Donald and later found out that Donald had given him a fake name that night. The officer testified he let them go after a few minutes of questioning in the street. He said shortly after, he saw them sitting on the church steps at First Avenue and Oliver Street. This is the same church where Belstad claimed he dropped Mandy off. Donald's wife testified that her late husband told her he was in a police car with Mandy that night. She said he gave a fake name to the police because he was on probation for marijuana charges. A woman using the payphone at the intersection testified she saw Mandy walking up the street toward her. The woman said Belstad did a U-turn at 6th Avenue and pulled up in front of a mini-mart at 5th Avenue and Oliver Street. The witness testified Mandy walked over to the passenger side and the two talked for a few minutes. Then she got in the car and it drove away. Rebecca, one of the sisters that saw Mandy that night, noted that the same vehicle had pulled up to her while she was walking home from a party on a different night. She said Belstad was driving and offered her a ride. During the trial, Wayne Milsarek told jurors that Belstad came to his home and told him that Mandy was missing and asked if Wayne knew of her whereabouts. Gerald Miller reportedly told jurors that Belstad asked him to lie to investigators and say that on the night Mandy went missing, the two men had driven to Canada. Prosecutors told the jury when Mandy's body was found, her pants were pulled halfway down, indicating at some point Belstad made sexual advances toward her. They said when she turned him down, he got angry and hit her on the head. An autopsy expert testified and confirmed that Mandy did in fact sustain a head injury before she died. Prosecutors also said when Belstad saw what he'd done, he ripped her bra off and strangled her with it. In addition, another woman testified that Belstad had taken her to the same park area months before. A man who knew Belstad then testified that he had seen him that morning after 2 a.m. and noticed his car was wet, and Belstad told him he had just washed it. In December 2021, a jury found Joseph Belstad guilty of second-degree murder, and he was sentenced to only 25 years, still proclaiming his innocence 28 years later. Janet Ann Taylor was a spunky, fun-loving girl and the youngest of three children. She loved animals and her friends and had a bright future planned. In 1974, at the age of 21, Janet was a sophomore at Canada College in Redwood City, California. She was also the daughter of the well-known and respected football coach Chuck Taylor, who coached Stanford's football team in the 50s. On the night of March 24, 1974, she was last seen by her friend Debbie Adams on the campus of Stanford University. Janet wanted to get home to nearby La Honda to feed her puppy and planned to hitchhike because her car was in the shop. 
The next day, on March 25, 1974, something caught the eye of truck driver Ernesto Evangelo along the side of Sand Hill Road and Manzana Needle Way in the foothills near Stanford's campus in California. He pulled over and found Janet's body beat and strangled to death in a shallow ditch. A year earlier, on February 16, 1973, another young woman's body was discovered a mile from where Janet's body was found. 21-year-old Leslie Marie Perlove had plans to attend the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Three nights before her body was found, she had called her mother from the library in Palo Alto, where she was employed as a clerk, to tell her she was about to drive home. The library was not far from the Stanford campus where Janet went missing from. She sadly never made it, and her orange Chevrolet Nova was found abandoned in an old quarry. Her body was then found under an oak tree in an area now known as the Dish due to its massive radio antenna. Like Janet, she had been tortured, beaten, sexually assaulted, and strangled. The murders would become known as the Stanford Murders and would go unsolved for nearly 50 years. In 2016, Leslie's case was reopened and her nail clippings were sent to a private lab. They were able to successfully collect DNA from all 10 of her fingernails. The DNA from Leslie's fingernails was used to create a DNA profile. Meanwhile, in 2017, a cold case team reopened Janet's case. That profile was used for genetic genealogy research performed by C.C. Moore of Parabon Nanolabs. She was able to narrow down the likely killer to a former Stanford University employee, John Arthur Detroit. His name was given to detectives who surveilled him and his wife at a coffee shop and were able to collect a coffee cup he threw away. The DNA collected from the coffee cup matched the DNA found under Leslie's fingernails. 74-year-old Jatro was then arrested and charged with the murder of Leslie. However, the trial was originally postponed when Jatro fell ill with a brain aneurysm and also because of the COVID-19 pandemic causing a backlog with the court. Meanwhile, the same DNA was then linked to Janet's green corduroy pants. He was subsequently charged with her murder, found guilty in 2021, and sentenced to seven years to life behind bars. During the trial, the prosecutor described Jatro as a family man and a Boy Scout leader who led a dark life out of the public eye. It turns out that Jatro began his spree of crimes as far back as 1963. When Jatro was a teenager, he lived in Germany where his father, a U.S. Army Sergeant Major, was stationed and attended Bad Quasnack American High School. At the age of 18, he was convicted of sexually assaulting and murdering 15-year-old Margaret Williams after offering to walk her home from a dance on the U.S. military base in Bad Crossneck, Germany. Margaret was the youngest daughter of the U.S. Army chaplain, and her body was found just a couple hours after being seen with Jatro. He was convicted in the German court system in 1964 and was tried as a juvenile. He was sentenced to 10 years in prison, but released after only serving five years. He then returned to the U.S., where he continued to prey on innocent victims. Margaret's older brother would contact the FBI at some point and let them know that his sister's killer was in California and would likely strike again. 
1970, less than a year after his release from prison in Germany, Tetro had a job at a California hospital. He married one of his co-workers, Susan, a single mother with a daughter named Kathy, and they lived near the Stanford campus. His ex-stepdaughter, now almost 60 years old, said that Jatro was a Boy Scout leader who appeared to everyone else to be a loving husband and stepfather, but Kathy says she knew the truth. She knew her stepfather was a monster. She said he began molesting her when she was six years old and continued this until she was 14. He threatened to harm her mother if she ever told anyone, and she believed him. The marriage came to an abrupt end in 1977 after Susan walked in on him molesting her daughter. Both women would go on to testify against Jatro at Janet's trial. In early 1975, he sexually assaulted a 17-year-old girl in Palo Alto. After taking a plea deal for statutory rape, he simply paid a $200 fine and spent about 30 days behind bars. His son, Aaron Jatro, stated that he had much sympathy for his father's victims and their families and said his family never knew about his secret dark life. He said his father was a loving father who taught him to treat women respectfully. He and his wife were shocked when he was arrested for murder in late 2018. Aaron said he is now on a crusade to find out if his father could be connected to other crimes, trying to make something good happen out of all of this evil. Detro is likely a serial killer and is suspected to be responsible for the attempted murder of 19-year-old Sharon Lucchese in 1969 and the murder of 15-year-old Teresa Smith in Newark, Ohio in 1980. He was quiet between 1975 and 2018, or at least more careful, during those nearly 45 years, but it is possible he committed similar crimes during that time. Thankfully, he is now behind bars where he belongs. Christine Susan Monroe was born on December 26, 1957. At the age of 37, Christine was a nurse and mother of four living in Redding, California. On June 24, 1995, Christine went for a run along the Sacramento River Trail, one of her favorite places to jog. However, she had no way of knowing this would be the last run she would ever take. As Christine ran on the trail, a predator hid, waiting for her to pass so he could ambush her. She would later be found dead along the hiking trail, sexually assaulted and stabbed to death. Sadly, her murder would go unsolved for the next 25 years. Meanwhile, in 1997, convicted rapist Michael Vilbig came forward claiming he was Christine's killer, but investigators determined he was fabricating the confession and ruled him out as a suspect. One police investigator later said Vilbig's version of the crime didn't match the attack that police had pieced together. One day before he confessed, he had been convicted for the rape and attempted murder of two women. The investigator theorized that Vilbig wanted to stay in the media spotlight and go to prison with a murder charge, which might have earned him more respect among some of the other inmates. In January 2020, Detective Rusty Bishop with Reading Police submitted scrapings that were collected and preserved from under Christine's fingernails. The evidence was submitted to the Department of Justice for analysis. 
and just five months later, he was notified of a match in CODIS to criminal James Earl Watkins. At the time, Watkins was serving a 14-year sentence for robbery in Texas. Authorities flew to Texas to interview Watkins and were able to obtain a DNA sample that would indeed match Christine's killer. He was 17 years old at the time of the murder and had moved from Texas to Redding in 1995 to live with his aunt and uncle. Before moving back to Texas two years later, he had been arrested for various crimes. After returning to Texas, he was arrested and charged with numerous other crimes, including sexual assault, burglary, escape, and bank robbery. Watkins pleaded guilty, and in August of 2021, he was given three life sentences for kidnapping, robbery, and lying in wait. Watkins was not eligible for the death penalty because he was a minor when the killing took place. Instead, he received life without the possibility of parole. Melissa Ann Lee was born on February 2, 1978. At age 15, she lived on the 19,800 block of Filbert Road in Snohomish County, Everett, Washington. On April 13, 1993, Melissa was home alone when she spoke to her mom, Sharon Lee, on the phone around 9.30 p.m. Hours later, her mom came home sometime after midnight and noticed that the front door was open. When she stepped inside, she noticed that things were in disarray, with items on the coffee table moved, the couch cushions out of place, an ashtray had fallen to the floor, a glass of milk was spilled, and 15-year-old Melissa was nowhere to be found. In addition, her mother's boyfriend stated that the room smelled like ether. Melissa was reported missing the next day. Her mother told investigators her daughter had run away before, and that's why she didn't call the police until about 12 hours later. A search of the home turned up Marlboro cigarettes and a lighter not belonging to Melissa, her mother, or her mother's boyfriend. Less than 24 hours later, a passerby saw her lifeless body in a ravine on the north side of Edgewater Creek Bridge in the 3800 block of Muckleteo Boulevard in Everett. She had been sexually assaulted and strangled to death before being thrown off a bridge. The autopsy also found ethyl ether and obtained chemicals in her system. During the investigation, detectives went through Melissa's address book. In it, she had written about meeting with a man named Michael and listed a phone number for him. A detective called the number, and a man with the last name Dean picked up. Police questioned the 35-year-old man who told detectives he and Melissa had briefly dated. A cigarette found nearby was collected and put into evidence. Although the case would go unsolved for the next 27 years, that cigarette would ultimately identify her alleged killer. In 2020, the cigarette that remained in evidence all those years was sent to Parabon Nanolabs to retrieve DNA, and they were able to successfully create a DNA profile. That DNA profile was used for genetic genealogy to determine who the likely killer was. Investigators were given one name, Alan Edward Dean. Detectives acquired a cigarette butt from Dean and were able to positively confirm it matched the DNA found on the cigarette butt left at the crime scene. 
Detectives confirmed Dane was living on Madison Street in Everett in 1993, about three and a half miles from where Melissa's body was found. Dean was working a day shift at Boeing in Everett before the killing and was interviewed by detectives three times in 1993. Dean told detectives he met Melissa on an anonymous phone chat line the month before. He reported he used the name Michael on the chat line and dated her twice in March 1993. Investigators said he was also accused of the sexual assault of a minor in Arizona before Melissa was killed. In July 2020, 62-year-old Dean was arrested near his home in Bethel, Washington. He was charged with first-degree murder and first-degree kidnapping. At his first court appearance, he refused to identify himself and rambled incoherently. At the next court appearance, he again refused to cooperate, so the judge ordered him to undergo a mental health evaluation. Months later, he was deemed incompetent to stand trial and ruled he be held at Western State Hospital, a psychiatric hospital. He was treated for schizophrenia and refused meds until he was ordered to take them involuntarily. The murder charges were dismissed due to a psychologist reporting that Dean couldn't understand the nature of the proceedings against him or help in his defense. In March of 2022, it was stated that he would be discharged early from the state hospital, but the reason was not released. Doctors at Western State Hospital called Dean gravely disabled, noting he suffered from severe major depressive disorder and physical and psychiatric impairment. The doctors argued he was ready for a less restrictive alternative placement when an appropriate one is available, like an adult family home. So, after being discharged in a wheelchair, prosecutors refiled the murder charges. However, Superior Court Judge Anna Alexander found the renewal of criminal charges to be a mistake and dismissed the case for the second time. It's unclear if he will ever be deemed competent to stand trial, but the judge said it's very unlikely. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.